America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm here with Professor Akil Amar. Hi, Akil. Hey, Andy. Yes, we're not strangers, even though it's been 10 days since our last episode was uploaded, and that's just when we're, when we're recording this. Uh, by the time it goes up, it'll be two weeks. And why was it two weeks? Well, it's because we had three episodes in one week. Um, and we had three episodes in one week, as you recall, audience, because of the importance of the Trump versus Anderson case and the oral argument and the somewhat of a fiasco that we thought you know took place at that point. And you know, we felt that our need to review your argument in great detail was important while there was time. Uh, so that's why we did the extra episodes. And judging from the comments that we've received, it seems like our audience appreciated the uh, detailed analysis. And that's kind of what you get from us. So that's on brand. And that's what we're that's what we do. Um, so we're back. And guess what? Still no, no verdict, no opinion, uh, rather, in uh, Trump versus Anderson, the 14th Amendment Section 3 case. And uh, so, Akil, what do you make of that? Um, from my point of view, no news is good news in at least two respects. One, okay, the oral argument did not go well. And so the only possibility that people are going to change their minds would involve time to consider arguments more carefully, to maybe examine amicus briefs that one wasn't able to analyze and examine carefully before the oral argument because there was an expedited briefing schedule and argument schedule. Yes, I'm, I'm hoping that actually someone's going to, on the court, focus on the amicus brief. And it did not come up in oral argument, and it still could come up. I'll give you, you know, one other re- possible straw in the wind or a couple of straws in the wind that suggest that's still a possibility. And because I actually think the arguments in the amicus brief are strong, and not just our amicus brief, but other briefs and other arguments out there, I want the justices to take their time and get this right. Bush versus Gore way back when was a disaster in my view because actually the justices decided things way too quickly without the the benefit of scholarly input. And it took a long time to try to undo the damage of Bush versus Gore. That was the Moore versus Harper ISL case, but that was 20 years later. So one, more time between oral argument and opinion um, release at least creates the possibility of changing of minds and examination of new arguments. And a second and somewhat distinct point is that if they were all on board unanimously, immediately, we might have seen an opinion by now. So it's just possibly an indication that at least one justice might be writing separately and pushing back, you know, in one way or another. I did hear some real skepticism. We both did at oral argument from especially Justice Sotomayor on some points, but not just uniquely from her. So again, the more time that passes is at least possibly suggestive of the fact that there's at least going to be some pushback. You know, even if we lose, I, I would not like my side to lose unanimously on this. And third, it's not just that there that justice be done, but but appearances are important. The appearance of propriety is important. And I think a decision that comes down too quickly after oral argument would create an appearance that the justices weren't really thinking about this carefully. There's really no harm in taking 
time to get it right. I don't think there's any immediate urgency as a practical matter. Yes, I know we're in the middle of an election season and all the rest, but there's still plenty of time, regardless of how they come out. And I think it would be good for the world to see, oh, the rules aren't different when Donald Trump is litigating. You know, they, they don't sort of drop everything else and just change their standard operating procedures. And ordinarily, opinions don't tend to come out within a week or 10 days or even two weeks of an oral argument. Well, so, okay, so let's talk about what's happened other than nothing, you know, in the interim since the, since the oral argument. So first of all, we've had, you know, our podcasts, and there's been some discussion, of course, uh, on the blogs. Your brother Vic has had an important article in uh, Justia that uh, we actually linked to in our show notes uh, in the last episode. Let me just take one moment here to re-educate our audience, because we do have a lot of new people in our audience about the show notes. So many people consume our podcast through one of the main podcast services. So for example, Apple Podcasts, which is by by far the biggest podcast service, has about an 85% share, I believe, of of podcast listening worldwide. Uh, people that, that listen to Apple Podcasts, well... They'll hear the podcast and they'll read a short summary that we've written, and that's what they get. But I want to let you know that if you're interested, and we, when we make reference to show notes, if you go to our website, akilamar.com slash podcast hyphen two, or if that's hard to remember, just go to akilamar.com and you'll see a link to uh, the, the podcast. There we have, again, the same description of the of the episode. You can play the episode. From that, from that site, but also there's all sorts of additional things. So for example, in this, these most recent episodes, as I just mentioned, we have a link to the, uh, the article by Vic. We have links to the oral argument transcript. We have links to our brief. We have links to, to, uh, to materials that are uh, at odds with things that we've said. So lots of academic and interesting resources are available to you there. And I really strongly encourage you to check that out. We put a lot of effort into it. I think it's a great resource. And of course, while you're there, you're on the akilamar.com website where there's all sorts of links to Akil's uh, scholarship and and other things. So th- this is a public service. You know, we, we do it to help educate the public. And uh, so I hope you take advantage of that. Okay. So Andy, and speaking of educating the public, we also are especially trying to educate lawyers. You can get, as you'll hear later in this episode and all our episodes, a continuing legal education, CLE credit for listening to this podcast. CLE typically actually in many places requires some written material as, as well as an oral presentation. And um, I mean, we did this, um, we put stuff up on show notes way before we had affiliations with the New Jersey Bar and other CLE organizations. But especially for the lawyers out there, yeah, we've got lots of written materials to, to supplement our um, weekly conversations. Right. That's, that's an excellent point. Okay. So anyway, so we do have the link to, to Vic's article. And then other, another thing that's happened is that our podcast has gotten some attention. It's been tweeted out by uh, some very 
authoritative and responsible sources. Um, one in particular, Akil, I think you'd like to draw attention to. The great Mike Ludig, former Federal Court of Appeals judge, very prominently mentioned as being on the short list for the Supreme Court way back when, appointed by a Republican president, a self-understood conservative who has uh, become particularly prominent in recent years for his courageous pushback against Donald Trump's attempted illegalities. Most famously, perhaps, Mike Pence reached out to Mike Ludig way back when for advice on what he should do and should not do back on January 6th when he was being pressured by Donald Trump to, in Trump's phraseology, stop the steal, to not permit the, the proper uh, counting and of electoral votes and certification of Joe Biden as president of the United States way back on January 6, 2021. And Pence, of all the people in the world that he could have, from whom he could have sought outside advice, reached out to Mike Ludig, and Ludig actually gave him advice that Pence explicitly relied upon and invoked. And really, ever since then, Mike Ludig has been an important voice and expert in the Donald Trump insurrection. And so in, in this case, Judge Ludig had a series of tweets, and he put in his own words, you know, the kind of what he considered the big constitutional arguments in our analysis of the oral argument. So I really appreciated that. I thought that it wasn't just like, oh, click retweet and that's that. You know, he really put a lot of effort into it. This is a serious man. And uh, and thank you for that. And he has a special credibility with card carrying Reagan conservatives with whom he worked way back when, like John Roberts and Sam Alito. He's a little bit a senior to Brett Kavanaugh, but he worked shoulder to shoulder with many other FedSoc-affiliated Republican Party self-identified legal conservatives. So he has real credibility. Okay. And now another thing that's happened uh, since the uh, since since we spoke to you last is that um, one of your law students in particular, Akil has done some more work, some more research on some of the matters before the, uh, in this case. And in particular, I think he came up with some really interesting evidence that didn't surprise us at all, but, but nevertheless um, is, was quite valuable, I think. And so what am I talking about? Well, you know, we spent quite a lot of time in our analysis of the oral argument on the self-execution argument, the, the notion that the 14th Amendment, Section 3, is not self-executing, that it requires a congressional statute in order to be enforced, and that we disagree with that notion for many reasons. So, But it took up a lot of the oral argument, and we thought at one point that we heard Justice Kavanaugh kind of writing his opinion you know, in, in a question uh, for Attorney Mitchell. We've mentioned this before, but here's a uh, just a quote from the oral argument uh, from Justice Kavanaugh in this colloquy with uh, with Mr. Mitchell. And this has to do with, again, Griffin's case. And he's saying that notwithstanding the fact that, that Griffin's case is a circuit ca- court case, that Chief Justice Chase is just opining on his own here, um, et cetera, he says, 
Justice Kavanaugh. But your point then, to, to Attorney Mitchell, is it's reinforced, that is Griffin's case, because Congress itself relies on that precedent in the Enforcement Act of 1870 and forms the backdrop against which Congress does legislate. And then there's some back and forth about preemption. And then he winds up by saying, and if we agree with you on Griffin's case and what you've elaborated on there, that's the end of the case, right? Okay. So you know, when they say that's the end of the case, I think you have to pay attention. So we've argued in response to this a, a number of things, including prominently in our brief, where we talk about the fact that uh, President Grant appointed a General Canby to uh, act in loco parentis of sorts uh, in Virginia, and in that quasi-state official capacity. He excluded various people from the ballot that this happened in Georgia uh, with the governor of Georgia prior to Griffin's case. So we've made that argument. Um, And of course, that argument was not addressed at all in the oral argument, as we've pointed out before. Um, But Justice Kavanaugh here is also implying that, well, Congress is relying on Griffin's case and they go ahead and legislate the Enforcement Act. And that means that they thought that Griffin's case, you know, was correctly decided and that, and that in fact, you needed self-execution. That sounds like what he's saying. Okay. So tell me a little bit then, Akil, about some of the evidence that your, your student, Sam Desai, uh, came up with on this. Well, as we said, look, it's Congress includes when it comes to lawmaking, the present. This is back to Moore versus Harper, just like the governor is part of a state legislature for certain purposes when the governor has a veto pen. Of course, the present is part of Congress when Congress legislates because bills have to be presented to the present. That's Constitution Rock, you know, um, a bill sitting on Capitol Hill, you know, and how a bill becomes law. And Grant is part of that process. And he, as you just said, Andy, has authorized and encouraged some of his officials to enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment in the absence of a congressional statute. And that's the real backdrop of this congressional statute. And in fact, Griffin's case incorrectly, falsely on the facts, says certain things about things that haven't happened in Virginia that actually have happened, namely self-execution in the absence of a congressional statute. So there's all of that. But our audience heard in a previous episode, you know, my skepticism, like, why would Grant sign a bill, uh, this Enforcement Act, that somehow was validating a contrary point of view and suggesting that he and his administration had been, you know, mistaken? So that didn't make sense to me. Enter Sam Desai, my great student. He was part of the t- the research team. We gave big shout outs to them earlier. And I basically, after our last episode, Andy said, listen, you're a whiz at looking at legislative history. I've got, you know, I have a full-time job teaching and, and I've got some other things. Why don't you look at the legislative history of this enforcement statute? Because I Actually, I'm not an expert on that. And I told the audience last week, Andy, that I wasn't an expert on this Enforcement Act because when I am an expert or I think I am, I'm going to tell the audience. And when I'm not, I'm going to tell the audience that too. And so I actually hope was really candid. I haven't studied this and I need to know more about it. It didn't come up really until Jonathan Mitchell's reply brief and then the oral argument. And when we heard Kavanaugh, I said, oh, this is important. We got to get on this. And the reply brief, you see, there's no... 
um, sir rebuttal or anything, no, no response to that. So he, he kind of snuck things in at, at the last minute. And Kagan herself said, oh, so now you're shifting to the argument in your reply brief. Okay, a little bit of a bait and switch, but especially because there's an expedited briefing, I said, wow. This Enforcement Act issue is important, and I don't know all about it. I'm going to get my top student to take a look at it. So I said, Sam, you know, please take a look at this. And what he found was astonishing. It's like a Marshall McLuhan moment out of Annie Hall. Like, why can't real life be like this? Because in a nutshell, he finds that the enacted language by Congress in the Enforcement Act that was supposedly adopted in reliance on Griffin's case, that that language had all been composed way before Griffin's case had ever been handed down. So it couldn't have been crafted, fashioned in reliance on Griffin's case because time works forward and not backwards. And the language actually originated before Griffin's case was ever handed down. And wow, real life is rarely that beautiful and clean and decisive as a refutation. In addition to what I said before, it just didn't smell right to me that Grant would have, have, have agreed with any of this stuff, and he had to sign the bill. And if he had signed it, oh, we'd see some discussion of it, because this is a big elephant repudiating Grant's administration, if that's actually what it was trying to do. You know, and elephants don't hide in mouse holes, and we should expect to, to hear a lot from Grant and others about this. But Sam found this great piece of evidence. He uploaded it on Jack Balkin's wonderful website. We've had Jack on in previous episodes, and I'm sure we'll have him on again in future episodes. And Will Bode and others uh, tweeted out Sam's findings. So why is this important? Because back to our earlier conversation, the opinion hasn't come down yet. So it's not too late um, for this information, really important information, um, decisively re- Justice Kavanaugh's initial inclination, which we were worried was going to be the the opinion, you know, um, it's not too late for this information to come to the attention of justices and their law clerks. Okay, and that's why we're trying to blast this out, information out um, uh, as well because it's not too late. Yeah. So a couple of things I want to add to what you, what you just said. First of all, this is not the only piece of information that Sam found. There's bunch of other uh, evidence that he came up with, very persuasive. For example, um, uh, concerning Jacob Howard, a very important source um, for things that he said on the floor, um, for the paucity of references to Griffin's case in the debate, really probably only one irrelevant reference, um, and other things as well. So um, we'll, we will link to uh, to Sam's post. Actually, I th- maybe I'll just post it the, in its entirety because it's it's relatively short. It itself contains links to evidence. So it's not just assertions. It's also evidence. Um, so very important. And also, by the way, you were mentioning that Will Bode tweeted it out. Also, I noted that, uh, that uh, Professor uh, Lawrence Tribe also tweeted it out. I mean, it's it's very persuasive. Um, it reminds me of that Monty Python clip that you uh, have played for me in, in the past. Uh, what's the- and let, let, let's actually play that in. Okay, so here's the uh, the Monty Python clip, and we claim uh, fair use on this. Uh, so um, here you go. Thank you, John. Please. 
Good evening and welcome to Stake Your Claim. And first this evening, we have with us Mr. Norman Voles of Gravesend, who claims he wrote all Shakespeare's works. Mr. Voles, I understand you claim that you wrote all those plays normally attributed to Shakespeare. And that is correct. I wrote all his plays and my wife and I wrote his sonnets. Mr. Voles, these plays are known to have been performed in the early 17th century. How old are you, Mr. Voles? Forty-three. Well, how is it possible for you to have written plays performed over 300 years before you were born? Oh, well, this is where my claim falls to the ground. Ah. Uh, there's no possible way of answering that argument, I'm afraid. I was only hoping you would not make that particular point, but I can see you're more than a match for me. Mr. Voles, thank you very much for coming along. <laughs> okay, well, yes. Okay, so, Andy, how could Griffin's case influence texts that were composed before Griffin's case was announced? Okay, how does that work? Yes, indeed. No, so this is the, the Marshall McLuhan moment from Annie Hall. Exactly. I Why can't real life ordinarily be like this? Yes. So, Akil, with all due respect, I mean... We, I, you know, obviously, I know that you're a very accomplished scholar and so forth, and a lot of people listen to our podcast. But do we have reason to believe that our podcast, that our 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 brief and our podcast and our conversation is is actually part of the conversation at this point? We have none in the following most important respect. I never have ex parte communications with justices or law clerks. That would be utterly improper. So far as I know, my team has had no improper conversations. My, my team of, of students, they, they may know some of the law clerks, but no, we don't do that. I have no firsthand knowledge whatsoever that any clerk or any justice is, is focusing in the slightest on what we've said. I didn't hear at oral argument any explicit references to our amicus brief or, or the um, other surrounding materials. At most, perhaps there was perhaps a reference. At one point, Justice Kavanaugh talked about greater power, lesser power arguments, and those are phrases that are in our brief, but it's a very common legal phrase. So, And our audience needs to know that I take legal ethics very seriously, and there are rules about improper ex parte communications. We've discussed those on previous episodes. People aren't supposed to be whispering privately into the ear of judges or justices or their law clerks, and I never do. So I haven't reached out to any of the clerks in a private way, even though I happen to know at least one of them, probably more. I haven't reached out to any of the justices, even though I know many of them. That would all be improper, and here's why it would be improper, because if I were I mean, I could reach out to someone just to say, hello, happy birthday, something like that. But to discuss a case is improper because whatever I privately discuss is not subject to refutation and rebuttal by the lawyers and the parties. It's utterly improper to do that. Now, I'm assuming, of course, that no member of my uh, research team has done anything like that. They're students. They, they may know some of the clerks because they're the same generation. But no, we don't do that at all. And our audience is saying, well, haven't you just been, you know, talking this episode, last episode, previous episode, hoping to reach the justices? Yes, but that's fair game because it's not ex parte. We're making this publicly available to the world. There's nothing secret about it. 
Jonathan Mitchell's team can hear what we say, and and you know he's Trump's lawyer, and and other lawyers on that side. So there's nothing improper about writing an op-ed before or after oral argument, and I did write one before oral argument or talking about it on on the podcast. Now you know the challenge is how do you though because. Because we wanted this to be an educational experience for our audience and especially for the lawyers in the audience. But we also want the justices and the law clerks to know these arguments before they um, release the decision. And, and yet these rules of legal ethics you know, restrict our ability just to, to be in touch with them directly. So what are we hoping for? What evidence do I have? I have the following evidence that after our brief was filed, our amicus brief, there were additional rounds of briefing, and two of the petitioners, that is the parties, the Republican committee in Colorado and Donald Trump himself, they had an opportunity to uh, submit reply briefs after the others. They're petitioners. They get the first word. They get the last word. And, oh, the justices and their clerks have to read the parties briefs. They don't have to read the amicus briefs. There's, I think there were 78 filed in the case. And the challenge is getting our amicus brief to the top of the pile. You know, And, we, and I didn't have any evidence that that had, had happened from oral argument other than you know, possibly what Justice Kavanaugh said. But wow, both petitioners did us, frankly, a real favor. And we're grateful to them for citing us. Uh, Jonathan Mitchell, in his reply brief, cited an article that Vic and I wrote in the Stanford Law Review way back in 1994 on how to think about the word officer and the the related concept of of office. And that is an acknowledgement, oh, we've been experts on this and have written about this, you know, a decade, uh, over decades, long before this lawsuit. And there was another petitioner brief uh, filed by the Republican State uh, Committee of Colorado that cited our amicus brief on three different occasions for three different points. Actually, it only cited two other amicus briefs. You know, uh, one it cited once, another it cited twice. So three different amicus briefs. Ours was one of them, and it cited us for three different propositions. And we hope that that actually helps to bring to the court's attention, the clerk's attention, our amicus brief as distinct from all the other amicus briefs that have been filed. But that's just a hope. Just take a break for a moment and give information to those of our audience who are looking to get the uh, continuing legal education credit that we mentioned earlier that's available for listening uh, to this episode through the good graces of the New Jersey State Bar Association and through affiliation with the New York and Pennsylvania uh, organizations as well. So any attorney or judge in those states can get... uh, their CLE credit directly just by going to podcast.njsba.com and filling out the form and entering the code. Now, if you're in another state other than New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania, you can do do this as well in almost every other state through reciprocity, but the uh, the particular mechanism uh, will be told to you by your state bar association. But in general, it involves using this same website. Um, okay, so podcast.njsba.com, fill out the form and the code. And the code this week is doctrine. Doctrine, D-O-C-T-R-I-N-E, doctrine. It's not case sensitive, and that's it. So thank you again to New- the New Jersey State Bar Association 
for their partnership on this. Okay. So, so Andy, you know, um, maybe we should at some point have an episode, the, the doctor and the doctrine. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. So now speaking of, of, of amicus briefs, we had uh, an amicus brief in another case, the Moore versus United States case. And now we ha- we promised you that we were going to do one of our clip episodes where we go through the oral argument. You can hear the justice just like we've been doing. And I think this is a quite a good case to do that on. But if we do it, it's going to be make for a very long episode this week. So instead, I think what we'll do is we'll save that for when the opinion comes out or if there's a slow week and we want to you know, fill another week with it um, later. But audience, we do want to, since we are talking about amicus briefs, um, we want to give you an example of what it sounds like when a justice reads an amicus brief and includes it, incorporates it into their oral argument. So, uh, and in this case, or, or in, in their participation in oral argument. So in this case, just to remind you, this is a case about a so-called luxury tax. In this case, it's the mandatory repatriation tax. And the question of whether or not this tax is constitutional. And most of the argument sent, or much of the argument centered around the 16th Amendment, uh, just to refresh your memory. 16th Amendment is an amendment that was a response to a case called Pollock, which basically said incorrectly, in our view, that certain income taxes were unconstitutional, that they were direct taxes, or that they were just, you know, NG. And uh, so the American people rejected that argument and drafted and ratified the 16th Amendment, which permitted certain types of taxation. Now, the question in this case was, is this mandatory repatriation tax constitutional? So that could mean that it's permitted under the 16th Amendment, or it could mean that it's permitted not with, you know, regardless of what the 16th Amendment says or doesn't say. If you say, well, it's an income tax, well, income taxes are permitted. You say, well, it's not an income tax. Okay, but it still might be permitted. Okay. But much of the argument centered on the first question, does it fall under the 16th Amendment? Is that enough? So if the 16th Amendment expressly permits it, then you're done. You don't have to get into wider questions of taxation. There was a lot of that. Our brief centered on a more expansive constitutional view. Akhil, you want to give us the the two-cent version of that? Yeah, just let's take some simple things. Let's take a, a sales tax or a customs duty. Now, those aren't income taxes, but they are constitutionally permissible because the Constitution, as originally crafted, was it was all about taxes because you need taxes. It was all about creating a, a government um, and an army and a navy, and you need money to support a government. And without a government, you might think, well, oh, that would be utopia. That would be nirvana. No, that would be actually becoming today a colony of Vladimir Putin. Okay, you need a government to protect you against Vladimir Putin and against Xi and other thugs around the world. And if you're going to have a government that's going to protect you against the thugs around the world, and, and that's I, that was, of course, a reference to today, but, but there were thugs in 1787, 88, 89, monarchies all around the world, um, authoritarian governments, and Alexander Hamilton understands that, and George Washington understands that. And so they push at Philadelphia in 1787 a new constitutional project that's going to involve a much stronger federal government with a much stronger tax 
authority. So all sorts of taxes are permissible under the original constitution. In fact, the word tax appears in in four different variations in the constitution, taxes, imposts, excises, and duties. And the only real limits are basically threefold. One, that these bills have to originate in the House of Representatives, not the Senate, because it's the more representative body. Two, as a political matter, if you don't like these taxes, you can vote the bums out. So no taxation without representation, but yes, taxation with representation. And if the taxation is too heavy, then you throw the representation, that is the representatives, you know, out the window. You defenestrate them, electorally speaking. You know, um, We're not advocating violence. That's just a metaphor, of course. So first, it has to originate in the, in the House. The Constitution says that. Second, it's got to come from representatives that you can vote for. That's in the structure and text of the Constitution. And third, there are some specific rules about direct taxes. Direct taxes have to be apportioned in a certain way by reference and effect to state population. But precisely because those direct taxes are going to be hard to impose because they have this special apportionment requirement, we believe that direct taxes are defined very narrowly. At the founding, they're basically land taxes and head taxes, especially head taxes on slaves, because it was all about protecting the Southern slaveocracy from a kind of a a tax system that could tax slaves at a high price and tax them out of existence. So forget the 16th Amendment for just a moment. Go back to the founding. It's all about taxes, broad tax power with one exception, There are special rules about direct taxes, but precisely because direct taxes are really a hassle, we believe they need to be defined narrowly. And that was Alexander Hamilton's view. And he fashioned early on as Secretary of the Treasury a tax on carriages. It was a luxury tax on on sort of wealthy people who have the equivalent of, of yachts or Learjets, but back then they were called fancy carriages, Baruch Landau, and things like that, Um, and um, uh, phaetons. And so this was a tax not on wagons and and carts uh, that farmers would use to bring hay to their farm animals or to, to take their farm produce to market. So it's not about farmers, wagons, and carts. It's about fancy carriages. Hamilton crafts that tax. It's attacked as being a direct tax, because there's no apportionment in this carriage tax system. It's attacked. Hamilton, at that point, by the time it reaches the U.S. Supreme Court, is in private practice. He's left government service, but Washington asks him to defend the tax in court, since he crafted it. He comes out of retirement, and for the first time in his life, only time, he argues the case at the United States Supreme Court. It's, and he wins unanimously. It's called Hilton. We talked about that in previous episodes. Virtually none of the other briefs in the case, the party's briefs or the amicus briefs, talked about Hilton, talked about Hamilton, talked about this founding era. And as you said correctly, Andy, and we were there, almost all the oral argument was all about the 16th Amendment, which is more than 100 years later, beginning of the 20th century rather than the end of the 18th century. So Almost all the oral argument was about the 16th Amendment and the Pollock case, which is from 1895. But one justice was really interested at oral argument about the Hilton case. And since 
Basically, ours was really the only a brief that talked about the, the Hilton case. That was evidence. We thought that that justice had evidently looked at the amicus brief and found its claims intriguing. So you're going to hear now what it sounds like when a justice at oral argument does perhaps pick up an amicus brief, which, to repeat, is much less likely to get attention than the parties' briefs because the parties are entitled to, to the justice's attention. Amicus briefs, not so much. Right. So this is pretty early on in the oral argument. There's been some discussion of the 16th Amendment, and now Justice Jackson gets the floor. Can I ask you a question about your argument um, before you go on with the governments? Um, So if we agree with you that the 16th Amendment's use of income requires realization and that the MRT does not meet the realization requirement, those are two, I think, different steps of your analysis. It seems to me that all we've done is demonstrate that the 16th Amendment doesn't justify the MRT. Don't you still have to demonstrate that the MRT is a direct tax in order to establish that the Constitution has been violated? Well, if the MRT is not a tax on income, then I think it stands to reason that it would be a tax on the ownership of shares, because otherwise... Well, the government makes another argument in their, in their brief, for example. They offer that it could be an excise tax. So I guess my point is just any indirect tax, I would think, just has to be uniform under the Constitution. So it seems it's as though it's your burden, regardless of this issue about uh, realization, to, to establish that this tax is a direct tax in order to sustain your constitutional argument. Am I wrong about that? We allege below that it was a direct tax. The government filed a motion to dismiss. It argued that it was, in fact, a tax on income. It did not dispute. So I appreciate that people haven't argued this. Would we then send it back to the Ninth Circuit to determine this issue of whether or not it's a direct tax? Or is it your argument that we can can sustain its constitutionality just because we haven't uh, had briefing on this particular aspect of it? Well, I, I think what the court could do is answer the question presented. Um, as to whether or not there would be anything left for remand, I think it's at the court's discretion as to whether it wishes to reach uh, the government's excise tax argument. So far as that argument is concerned, um, again, the bare text of the statute operates based solely on ownership of a particular piece of property on a particular date and takes no account uh, of any type of business operations of the people whom it's taxing. Um, that is the sort of tax that Flint, which I think is the high water mark of the court's excise tax jurisprudence, uh, indicates is in fact a tax on property and cannot be sustained as an excise tax. So I think the court could very easily make short work of that argument. Um, go, go, going to the government's position it, regarding. Is that argument within the question presented? No, Your Honor. Was it preserved? No, Your Honor. Um, It was raised for the first time before this court. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. So thus far, the audience might say, Akhil, are you delusional? She's mentioning the government's argument, but there's nothing quite about your amicus brief by name or anything else. And she's not, for example, even mentioning the Hilton case, um, which you talked about. So there are going to be some additional clips. But on that one, it nicely connects with what we've been talking about with Jonathan Mitchell, because this guy is, of course, challenging the tax. And he's challenging the court below, the Ninth Circuit, which upheld the tax. He's 
the petitioner. Okay. And I was actually, you and I were in the courtroom, and I was shocked when I heard Justice Alito ask if that issue had been, quote, preserved. Okay. Because the person, the party that won below doesn't have to preserve anything. It just has to say this opinion below was correctly decided, even if on a different theory than the opinion below actually provided. As long as it got the right result, it is utterly fair game for the, the winner below, who's called the respondent, to advance a certain theory about why the court below got it right. Now, if you want, you can remand and, and all the rest, but it's perfectly fair game just for the winner to say, we won below and for a right reason, whether it's the right reason given by the court or not. That's one point. Second, there are special rules about the government. And because you wouldn't want the government as a whole, that is we the people who elect our government to somehow not be able to win on an issue that doesn't involve just this one party, but sets precedent for all of us in all future cases, just because one government lawyer, you know, failed to make the right argument at the right time. Two different and distinct reasons, Justice Alito, that you shouldn't insist that the government below said a certain thing. Now, let me contrast that with what Jonathan Mitchell did. He's my friend. He actually and I were going to do an event at Yale Law School together last week. He wasn't able to come, but he's given me a rain check. What he did was not improper, but he, in his lawsuit, he's Trump's lawyer, is the petitioner. He thinks the court below got it wrong, and he's adding a slightly new argument, truth be told, in his reply brief, which I called slightly a bait and switch, you know, on this Enforcement Act of 1870 and how it was really in reliance on Griffin's case and all the rest. And, and none of that was in the certiorari petition or the first round of briefing. It was only in the last round where he was guaranteed that there wouldn't be additional, you know, briefs after that. And, and that's why the, and, and there was this expedited a briefing schedule, which is why oral argument happened, you know, very quickly thereafter. And Justice Kavanaugh, I think, frankly, was, uh, was being sold a bill of goods. And that's why what Sam Desai has done is so very important. And we need to get that information out before the justices. But it's very different for the petitioner to make an additional argument that wasn't made in the court below, that wasn't in the certiorari petition, that wasn't in the, quote, question presented. That's really different than the government as a respondent, okay? So two different points. One is when you won below, you have all sorts of entitlements that you don't have when you lost below. And second, there are special rules to make sure that the government doesn't lose power. And this isn't just the executive branch. It should be Congress as well, just because one lawyer one day you know, didn't make the right argument. Okay. And, and, and again, so that's a, a separate point from, of course, our, those relating to our brief. Um, but... Right. And so we're, we're going to hear, I think, later on about Hilton, I hope, because I, when I, I remember, actually, it's been, and we haven't pre-rehearsed all this, but you and I were in oral argument. And when she started talking about direct taxes, you and I looked at each other and smiled. And later on, oh, she went there, talked about Hilton. And that's where, you know, you and I both thought, okay, she's read the amicus. I brief. promise you that she will mention it. Now, after, after this, um, a bit of a colloquy between, or at least a team up, uh, among Justices uh, Gorsuch and Jackson, perhaps an unlikely pair, took place. So Justice Gorsuch chimed in here. 
And then um, I'd like you to go back to uh, the discussion you had with Justice Jackson. And I understand your point that the excise argument uh, has been forfeited or perhaps even waived in this case. Just want your thoughts on it generally as an original matter. Um, You know, we have the Hilton case um, from quite a long time ago. Carriages uh, were thought perhaps not to be a direct tax. Um, Could the government as an original matter, call this an excise tax? I think the answer resoundingly would be no. Um, The whole point of the direct tax clauses was to make it difficult for Congress to levy these types of taxes while still leaving that authority available uh, at, you know, in times of emergency. And so far as taxes on personal property uh, and things like investments were concerned, that was addressed extensively during the ratification debates uh, for the Constitution. Um, and it was, really, it was really one of the primary arguments of the anti-federalists against uh, ratification of the Constitution was that uh, permitting, the gov- permitting Congress to levy direct taxes would simply be a step too far and would, and would allow Congress to uh, destroy, uh, destroy the states and reach all the property that was uh, known to all families across the country. So, I mean, that was one of the foremost concerns. And the way, the, the way that the framers addressed that was to render these types of taxes specifically subject to apportionment. I mean, this was addressed and discussed uh, at the Connecticut, uh, the Pennsylvania, and the Virginia ratifying convention by James Madison, uh, by Chief, Chief Justice Marshall, um, it was a central concern at the time, and as a matter of original meaning, um, this sort of investment, this sort of property, uh, is something that necessarily was subject uh, taxes on it was subject to apportionment. So everything about that was wrong, <laughs> almost everything. So first of all, with all due respect, Justice Gorsuch, you know you were a federal court of appeals judge for many years. You and so were all of you, except Justice Kagan. You all know that even if your decision was wrong in its rationale, it gets affirmed by the Supreme Court if you reach the right result. You know, now you're occupying a different position as a Supreme Court, but that, of course, you must know that. So when you actually said, oh, it's been forfeited, what are you talking about? And you're going to hear later on when the government's attorney finally gets in at a certain point, they finally make that point. And so I hope we, we play that clip as well. So that's just on the procedure of what's forfeited and what's not. But then the attorney, you, you asked actually about carriages, good, about direct taxes, good. You're picking up now on Justice Jackson, who, who was talking about direct taxes direct taxes and carriages. That's the Hilton case. It's all about carriages, you see. So now we're moving from the 16th Amendment to the founding era. So you asked at least a good question about originalism. And what the lawyer said in response was total BS. He was just vamping and blowing smoke out his advocate's ass. Okay, so for example, he invokes James Madison. Well, here's the problem. James Madison actually said the carriage tax was unconstitutional. He said that in the House of Representatives. He voted against it. He actually helped organize his pals to attack the carriage tax in court. He's the the driving force behind all this. And he gets his butt kicked unanimously by the Supreme Court in the Hilton case. So that would hardly be where I'd start. The guy who actually says stupid things about a carriage tax that the Supreme Court unanimously smacks down. And then wait for it as president changes his mind and signs a carriage tax into law. 
Okay, so he invokes Madison, not where I would start. Then he starts talking about what it was all about and blah, 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 you know, and the anti-federalists. Why don't you look at the federalists? They were the people who actually supported the Constitution, just like now back to the Trump versus Anderson. Why don't you look to the guys who actually believed in Section 3, like Ulysses Grant, rather than the guy who was opposed to Section 3, Salmon P. Chase? You see, I play by rules. I have consistent rules. And, and so I wouldn't, in general, be focused so much on what the anti-federalist said. I would be focused on what the federalist said. And the key federalist is Alexander Hamilton on this. He writes no fewer, Andy, than six of 85 Federalist Papers, all about the tax power. He's obsessed by the tax power. Then he crafts the carriage tax. Um, then he defends the carriage tax. And he wins unanimously in the Supreme Court. That's where you start, not with Madison or the Anti-Federalists or John Marshall, uh, for that matter, because um, John Marshall has up on his wall, basically, a portrait, this metaphorically, of Alexander Hamilton. On his desk, his little motto for life is, follow Alexander, okay? He holds Hamilton in total awe. When you read McCulloch versus Maryland, it's just a cut and paste in large portions of Hamilton's defense of the, the bank law. And by the way, Madison was on the other side of that one initially, and then he lost unanimously in the Supreme Court, the, we call that McCulloch versus Maryland, by John Marshall. And then he later actually signs his name to a bank law. So he, he's got a bad track record on some of these issues of federal power, does James Madison. But Marshall, whom the lawyer also invoked, holds Hamilton in awe. And to repeat, this was Hamilton's only oral argument before the United States Supreme Court, and he wins it unanimously. And then he says, this attorney said a whole bunch of other things about property taxation and direct taxation of the founding. None of it was remotely coherent, I assert, as a scholar who wrote 15 pages on this in my last book, The Words That Made Us, way before this lawsuit ever materialized. And indeed, our amicus brief cuts and pastes huge chunks of that analysis. Oh, and I wrote about it you know, 20 years before that in a book called America's Constitution of Biography. Maybe I'm wrong about all of this, okay? That's always a possibility. But I promise you, I've studied this for many years and have a consistent position. And what that lawyer said, I don't know who the lawyer is, not a scholar, was just smoke and mirrors and vamping and BS. And here's why. And I understand why. Because none of the other briefs in the case are actually talking about all of this. So it's not, it wouldn't be a surprise that they're not really, you know, hugely prepped on this issue because he was prepped on the 16th Amendment and Pollock and realization requirements or not and attribution or not. That's where almost all the other briefs, and I, I think, again, there were, if you count the amicus briefs, maybe, you know, 50, 60, 70, or more, that's where the center of gravity was. I think there was only one other amicus brief by my friend Steve Calabresi, joined by Gary Lawson and Ed Meese, who even talked about Hilton and the founding. I respectfully disagree with them about all that. So I understand why that answer was so bad on the merits, because he doesn't know what he's talking about, truthfully. And we're going to hear, I hope, this clip from Justice Jackson, where she actually asked explicitly about the Hilton case, which, to repeat, embraced a very broad Hamiltonian understanding of the tax power and correlatively a very narrow 
understanding of what counts as a direct tax requiring apportionment. Yeah, so obviously the attorney was uh, all over the place there. However, at least, you know, Justice Gorsuch, he's asking the right question. He's following up on Justice Jackson and actually referencing Justice Jackson. And now here comes Justice Jackson back in on this back and forth. Justice Jackson? Yes, um, I'm interested in your conversation with Justice Gorsuch about the sort of original meaning of uh, the direct tax clause. And I'm trying to understand um, whether it's your position that as as an original matter, the direct tax clause was interpreted to include income and all sorts of things, or was it narrow? I had thought originally, um, as we said in the Hilton case, that it was pretty narrowly focused on capitations and taxes on land. Am I wrong about that? Uh, The Hilton case had three seriatim opinions. Two of them viewed it as a consumption tax uh, regarding conveyance of persons. Uh, The third of them, uh, by Justice Iredell, um, adopted the view that, well, if it's difficult to apportion something, then it should not be subject to apportionment. What about Justice Patterson's uh, explanation that uh, this was a pretty narrow clause and that it was designed to protect southern states and slavery from federal interference, that that was really what was going on here, and therefore— when you're looking at direct taxes, you're talking about or direct yeah, taxes as opposed to indirect. You're talking about certain kinds of things and that it's not necessarily others' income and that sort of thing. Well, I think as a matter of original meaning, that's incorrect. But I would note in the context of that opinion, it was dicta. It certainly didn't stand for the position of the court. Did the court, um, until McComber, hold that income was direct? Uh, not with respect so much to income, Your Or, I'm Honor. sorry, Pollock is what I'm saying. Pollock. Well, prior, I mean, I think the, the case that addressed this issue prior to Pollock was Springer, which mm-hmm. did ad- adopt the narrower interpretation of the direct tax clauses. So up until Pollock, which was addressed by the 16th Amendment, we had a very narrow conception of direct tax. Uh, for a 20-year period, uh, there was. Um, subsequent to that, um, as, as I said, Pretty much all of the Court's 16th Amendment cases over the past century have concerned taxes on personal property in the form of investments. So I think the Court would really uh, have to upend its jurisprudence uh, if it were decided this late date that the direct tax clauses ought to be given some other interpretation. All right. Okay. So that does sound like someone that has read our brief. And a lawyer who doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. And so he uses some of the right words. Oh, you know, at this late date. Dude, actually, Hilton is not late date. It's, at the, it's before the Marshall Court, okay? She says, for Justice Jackson does, well, wasn't there this period of broad understanding of tax prices? Oh, for 20 years. What are you talking about for 20 years? It's from Hilton, all the which is in the 1790s, all the way to Pollock. That's, by my count, 100 years, not 20 years. And then he says, oh, well, maybe actually one justice said it, but not the others. No, they all said this. These are short seriatim opinions. It's like 10 pages in total. And then he says, oh, that was dicta. Dicta can't be, Attorney Grossman, just language that doesn't help your cause, okay? It's, dicta is language that's utterly irrelevant to the, the reasoning that justified, that explained 
the, the legal reasoning that justified and explained the results of the case. So this wasn't dicta at all, and it wasn't just one justice, and it wasn't for 20 years. You know, and you're going to, I predict, lose this case. Now, truthfully, I predict we're probably going to lose you know, the, the Trump versus Anderson case, but you will deservedly lose this because you're just making all this stuff up. Now, Justice Jackson, she not only is focused on the founding and direct taxes, but, oh, she used a certain word. If this were the old Groucho Marx show, you know, the, the magic word. Secret she, she word. It wasn't all the secret about word. The secret word. Oh, the secret word, right. The secret word. It wasn't all about slavery. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, I want to correct and revise something I said before. There was one other amicus brief that really does talk about the founding. It's not truthfully so much my friend Steve Calabrese's brief with Gary Lawson and Ed Meese, which mentions Hilton but kind of you know pushes it off to one side and doesn't, I think, have a word, one word about the a connection between these original rules and slavery. But our brief says, oh, it was all about slavery, which is why you want to interpret it narrowly. At the founding, you want to interpret it narrowly, and especially after the 14th Amendment, you see, you want to interpret it narrowly. There was one other brief that highlighted these issues, amicus brief, by my friend and colleague and teacher, the great Bruce Ackerman. So it was obvious when you heard Justice Jackson that she had read these two amicus briefs, because they are the ones that say, before Pollock, before the 16th Amendment, it's all about what's a direct tax, and that's all about slavery, and don't read it broadly. And the justices say that in Hilton, and Bruce Ackerman says that in a very important article that we should put up on our show notes again in the Columbia Law Review and in his amicus brief. And we say that, you know, emphatically, I emphasize that in at great length in the words that made us, and we cut and paste from that uh, to form the spine of our amicus brief. Uh, put differently, our audience should just hear the following words of the Constitution, not to get into too much detail. Here's just one a quick way of showing that for our audience. Article 1, Section 2 s- says the following, representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states, dot, 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 by adding to the whole number of free persons, dot, 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 three-fifths of all other persons. So that's the infamous three-fifths clause, and it's right there about how Congress is apportioned, how the House of Representatives, and therefore the Electoral College, but also how direct taxes are apportioned. This direct tax clause is all about slavery. Bruce Ackerman said that, Akhil Amar said that in the words that made us, uh, and in an earlier book called America's Constitution, a biography from 2005, in the amicus brief joined by Vic Amar, and the great Justice Harlan said that in his descent, Justice Harlan the Elder, John Marshall Harlan, named for John Marshall, Attorney Grossman, John Marshall Harlan, the great dissenter in Plessy versus Ferguson, oh, he says all of that in his dissent in the Pollock case. So it's all about slavery. Harlan understood that. Bruce Ackerman did. I did. Oh, and KBJ does. And so that's what it sounds like, audience, when 
a justice is picking up on an amicus brief. And, and as I said, I know that they're picking up on the amicus briefs because the parties didn't talk about that. Bruce Ackerman did, my teacher, colleague, mentor, friend, and we did. And I don't think actually you'll see it in any of the other briefs. And then finally, we have a very, very short clip here where uh, Justice Gorsuch is quizzing General Prelogger, and she does get to this question about whether you, on what basis you can affirm. But if I'm working within this court's precedents, if I don't consider them wholly misguided, okay, if I'm not willing to overturn 100 years worth of precedent, what you're asking us to do, and, and the question is, is it fair to say this, this taxpayer constructively or actually realized this income? Should I vacate and remand? No, you should affirm because here we made the argument. But, but, yeah. but just answer my question. You know, if, if, we, if we think that there's some constructive realization or attribution requirement required, but that hasn't been adjudicated yet, hasn't been argued yet, what should I do? If you think it hasn't been argued yet, I, of course, disagree on the facts, no, but I, I the court can affirm on an alternative ground, even one that the party didn't raise. The court said that in Dada versus United States, for example. So I think it would be open for the court to affirm on that ground because we do think it's a very strong argument, uh, and I would encourage the court to do so. Okay. There you go. She said it. Thank you. <laughs> Had Solicitor General Prelogger been a little bit more of an originalist, I think she might also have said, I'm not asking, the government is not asking this court to overrule 100 years of precedent. We are asking the court to return to precedents that are more than 200 years old, precedents that predate the Marshall Court, precedents closely associated with a law that George Washington signed into law. It was argued by Alexander Hamilton and affirmed by a unanimous court, this court, in its earliest years. The first important case ever decided by this, constitutional case ever decided by this court, the most important case scholars agree before the Marshall Court and Marbury versus Madison. Had she been more of an originalist, I think she could have said all of that. But you see, her briefs and all the other briefs really went off on the 16th Amendment and not on the found. Let me say it a different way. The Hilton case is way more weighty in this case, in more versus United States, than Griffin's case ever could be for the 14th Amendment. Because Griffin's case is one judge, okay, on circuit, very much opposed to, for example, the sitting president of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant. Here we've got all the justices on banc and in complete alignment with Alexander Hamilton and George Washington. So if we were making a connection here, I would say Grant and Canby, you know, who are on my side, are very similar to Washington and Hamilton back in the day. But here we've got Washington and Hamilton and a unanimous Supreme Court all in agreement. And then a later court forgets all of that in Pollock. Okay, and this is the problem when actually you don't pay attention to good founding understandings of things. So had she been more of an originalist, I think she could have said, no, we want you to go back to Washington and Hamilton and the unanimous Supreme Court. And now this is all relevant, you see, to the case that we began with, 
the Trump v. Anderson case because none of those sorts of things can really be said about Chief Justice Chase, who was on his own and opposed to the Washington equivalent, who is Ulysses S. Grant, and the Hamilton equivalent, who is Canby. Not to mention that he's opposed to himself, Chase, in the Jefferson <laughs> Davis case. But anyway, that's but that's a different... Andy, and maybe we could call it all dicta. Yes, right. There you go. <laughs> okay. So again, we'll be back with more on Moore versus the United States at some point, probably when the decision comes down. Um, and uh, But that won't, who knows when that'll be. And obviously more about Trump versus yes. Anderson when that decision yes, comes but down. But it, it is interesting to see how, you know, you write a brief, you get involved in the case, and hopefully you got some insight into that audience. We'll be back next week. Thanks, Akil. Thank you, Andy. Thank you.